The landscape of North America's networks is rapidly evolving. New technologies like 5G carry a lot of promise to redefine the way we do business, learn, and connect with one another. But we're not there just yet. From the budget to build, software to secure, and Spectrum to support all use cases regardless of locale, a lot needs to happen before everyone can tap into its fullest potential. Tune in to Nokia today, where we discuss how policymakers, enterprises, and industry leaders are working together to bring today's network capabilities to scale for the future. Hello, everyone, and welcome to part two of our conversation here on Nokia Today about renewing the national broadband plan. I am your host, Tyler Kern. We are thrilled that you've joined us for this episode of the show. If you missed part one of the podcast, make sure and go back and listen to that one first, because this is a continuation of that conversation. We've split it into two parts. So this is part two with Brian Hendricks of Nokia, Blair Levin, and Edward Smith, who goes by the name Smitty. So let's dive back into that conversation. Let me turn things back over to Brian Hendricks to get us going here for part two of our conversation on renewing the national broadband plan. Many of the, the recommendations in the report talk about funneling government energy toward broadband for a purpose, uh, telehealth, education, workforce development. And this is a question for both of you. Do you think this helps highlight the concern or what should be a concern that missing communities with our newest generations of technologies are going to have an even more dramatic impact on equality and inclusion, given the expectation that digitalization is going to continue to move forward and more essential services and activities of daily life are going to move online. In other words, what's the emphasis on broadband uses as a driver? Yeah, Brian, I think that's that's exactly right. Uh, Let let me start by pointing to a really interesting um, study that a great group called the Partnership for Public Service uh, that's located here in D.C. just did. And and, and that's a group that very much focuses kind of on the civil service and, and how do you improve government effectiveness um, kind of over the long term and in terms of how you hire and how you develop uh, talent, stuff like that. They did a report on government success stories uh, in COVID, and they pointed to a number of ways in which government agencies improved their ability to offer services to the public, all of which are online, which means that the benefits only flow to those who are online. So they had, for example, um, an example of how the VA did uh, enabled working with Microsoft enabled kind of chatbots to do some uh, opening triage, which saved people whether they had to go to the hospital or not, or had to go see a doctor or not, um, and, and gave them some telehealth options. And that's great. We absolutely love that. That's the way we should be doing it. That's the way we should be honoring our veterans or anyone who needs uh, health services. But the problem is, if you're not online, it doesn't work for you. And and part of the dilemma here is that, you know, any major business, if given a choice between offering uh, offering their products in an analog way or only digital, would obviously prefer digital because it's a lot easier. It's easier to do customer services. It's easier to do sales. If you know 100% of your customer base is online, you can run much more efficiently and your data is better and all kinds of improvements come from that. But if you have to serve 100%, you can't do that. And so government is the last big institution that has to run both a digital and an analog platform. And that adds to the cost and it adds to inefficiencies. But as more and more of the economy and society moves online, it also adds to the injustice. You're zeroing in a little bit more on the utilization gap 
with regard to government services, which you're you're talking about, Blair, it, it is a at least to me, a new and interesting angle for discussion of the broadband policy. And this is an area where it seems like government policy can make a substantial impact. Can you describe uh, just at a high level some of your your thinking and what in particular some of the key policy recommendations in here in the report? You know, healthcare, there's obviously a bunch of recommendations related to um, getting rid of those barriers to telehealth in terms of you know, state licensing and things like that. There's also focusing, it, it's interesting, uh, when we talk about telehealth, there's uh, an extraordinary focus on rural, which makes some sense because rural hospitals have been dying at an increasing rate. A lot of that has to do with states' own views. Uh, a lot of states have not expanded Medic, um, Medicaid, and, and that has led to closing of rural hospitals. But there's, it's a complex equation. But there's a number of diseases which very much affect people who live in urban areas, particularly certain communities of color, where we, we aren't doing a good job of kind of creating telehealth options. And uh, we, we make some recommendations in that. Uh, workforce development, there's obviously a number of different things in terms of uh, training people for jobs. One of the things that's going to characterize uh, the next generation of the workforce is no one is going to have a job. Like in my generation, you go to IBM, you work there for 40 years. That's just not going to happen anymore. And so there's a need for constant retraining. Community colleges are a big part of that. But online training is going to be a huge part of that. And it was interesting during COVID, you know, the United States has 2,600 job centers where you can go and get help for getting your unemployment benefits and other kinds of benefits. And and, and, and look at uh, various training options. Well, those all had to close down because of COVID, but most of those things could be done online, but you had to be online. Unfortunately, if you just lost your job, it may have been difficult to keep paying for your broadband. So we've got to think about how that all works. Civic engagement is another very important thing. We have to think a lot about misinformation and disinformation. COVID's another example. There were lots of people who believed many things for a long time that, that frankly reflected misinformation being given, not just online, uh, also on radio, also on television broadcast. Uh, we have to think carefully about that, but we also have to think carefully about, you know, what does it mean when in, in many cities, 20, 25, 30% of the population isn't online? What does that do to democracy, not just in terms of who you vote for, but how you participate in public debate. Um, so we have, we have ideas about that. And of course, we have ideas about education. I, I would, you know, I won't go through all of them, but I, I would just note, we're about to have a generation that's going to suffer from something called the COVID slide. Every summer, there's something called the summer slide, where kids leave third grade, reading at a third grade level, and come back to school uh, after the summer, starting in September, reading at a second grade level. And then they got to pick up again. Well, with COVID, there are kids who have literally been out of school for a year, and they have fallen backwards by even a greater amount. We need to really have a surge, and the, and the way to do that surge is with online tutoring. There are a lot of states that are having volunteer programs to do that, but we need a national effort to, to really help the kids who need it the most with just basic reading, basic math skills, uh, because those are the foundations of, of success in the economy to come. Smitty, let me ask you this, because 
it, we're going to give our listeners a, a way to, to access the report for themselves. But it seems to me that as you have been talking through the findings and the recommendations here, uh, they're all highly interrelated and interdependent. And I was thinking as, as Blair was talking about the, the workforce development issue and the ability to deliver more and more training to digital uh, through digital platforms, it harkens back to when we were talking about um, affordability and adoption, and we were mentioning the need for digital literacy skills training and other issues because the folks, you know, have to have access to a broadband network. They have to be able to afford it, and devices necessary. They have to feel proficient in its utilization, and uh, otherwise, the ability to deliver some of these kinds of things like digital training is is going to be limited. So, so you agree that this that this report is is really holistic, but very interdependent on on moving on all of these issues together. Absolutely, um, and, and in fact, one of the interesting things about the the, the plan is how interleaved various parts are. So as you sort of mentioned talking about sort of this issue of digital literacy and um, and people being able to access these things, uh, obviously the, the availability question is a big one. Uh, the affordability question is a big one. But when you look at adoption, adoption is, uh, you know, generally has three components, right? Affordability, can, can you afford the broadband service if it is indeed available to you? You know, also, you know, are you, uh, you know, able to then access and use it in a way where, uh, you know, you can take advantage of these uh, of these resources. Uh, and, and that's the digital literacy piece. Uh, and, and then there's the relevancy piece. Do you recognize that there's, uh, you know, that this is a service, that this is a, 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 a tool that is worth having? I think increasingly today, people understand that part. Uh, but, you know, closing that digital literacy gap is relevant and is something that we uh, speak to uh, in, in the report. We, we propose putting we propose an office of uh, digital equity uh, that can work and coordinate across federal agencies uh, and uh, advance initiatives to increase adoption of broadband at home. You know, we uh, propose a digital literacy core, which is uh, somewhat informed by uh, the healthcare navigators that came out of the Affordable Care Act. But uh, the idea being, uh, you know, a, a uh, team, a group of skilled experts who can work to solve a lot of major adoption issues and, and work at the community level, uh, you know, to help people with home connectivity, how do you, you know, down to the level of, you know, how do you actually use, you know, how do you hook up the device, uh, help, you know, with building digital skills. Uh, we advise creating resources for, uh, you know, for digital learning. And so I, I think that's, it's really important to sort of look at this as an, an integrated piece, uh, you know, really quickly is it, it, when we sort of even when we talk about the affordability part the, the affordability issue is interleaved with uh the utilization uh piece for our for the for the plan so affordability is a major issue in this country for a lot of people and and, and frankly it, it's a what we think is probably the largest component of whether or not we close the adoption gap uh and the adoption gap uh, likely dwarfs the availability gap when we talk about how many people are, uh, have broadband that is available to them at their door but do not actually uh, subscribe to it. And so, you know, when we look at how do we solve that problem, how do we close that gap, we look at it with an eye towards uh, utilization. Uh, and and, and in, in fact, you know, we, we certainly would, you know, support uh, universal broadband benefit. Uh, and that is one potential solution, something that is an expansion on the emergency broadband benefit uh, that uh, was recently passed, the 3.2 billion one. But in the absence of that, uh, we talk about lifeline reform, and we look at lifeline reform in, in terms of uh, you know uh, what are essentially 
you know, core essential services. So Lifeline Jobs, Lifeline Med, and Lifeline Ed to help leverage the resources that currently exist, uh, funding resources and the distribution resources and the expertise that exists throughout the government in order to go ahead and, you know, close those gaps that ultimately we think will close the lion's share of the entire adoption gap. Again, the, uh, the the plan is a cohesive whole, and there's a lot of pieces to it. We don't expect that it will uh, all be adopted. Uh, and indeed, this is just the beginning of a conversation. But we do believe that it's got some very important parts that work well together. Let me pick up on the, the political dimensions of, of what you were just describing, Smitty, about you don't expect to get every point uh, adopted ultimately through the legislative process. But but let's let's talk about one of the recommendations that uh, maybe it's less sexy for people when they look at it, but it, it, it drew my eye, is the focus on the institutionalization of data collection. Uh, I think a lot of people listening would be surprised uh, at how poorly we have done with mapping where broadband is and collecting uh, information dynamically about how people use broadband and what's going on out there in terms of affordability. So there's a number of recommendations uh, in the report itself uh, to deal with that. And I, I guess I'm wondering for, from both your perspectives, you've, you've been in, in government, you've been in very important positions with very influential folks. It does seem from time to time like broadband is one of those issues that will heighten in importance uh, in people's minds. And then we have a protracted discussion about it and Congress appropriates money for it. And then it seems to recede a bit from the from the national landscape of, of technology policy debates. Is some of that you think going to be overcome by the fact that we will have a constant flow of dynamic information highlighting we've made progress here, we still have ways to go here? How do we keep this from sliding off the agenda? In the chapter on institutionalization, um, we make a number of proposals to do precisely that. There's no guarantee, of course. One of the things that's uh, kind of from a global perspective uh, in terms of being impressive is the way Korea, um, with their own national broadband plan, not only had a plan, they redid their plan periodically, but they also had a kind of a coordinating group that was constantly looking at data and saying, how do we do better? You know, are we hitting our benchmarks? Is, is this working? If it's not working, okay. You know, which by the way, every private sector company I've ever worked with, and I've done more work in the private sector than I have the public sector. That's the way every private sector company operates. It is not the way government is operating today. And I, I, we've avoided bipartisan, we've avoided partisan uh, comments so far, and I don't want to ruin it. But I would just say that from my perspective in the last four years, uh, the prior leadership at the FCC seemed really eager to take any fact and cherry pick every fact to say, see, what we're doing is working and what the other guys was, was doing was really bad. And that's a very, I think, dangerous thing for effective government. That's the wrong attitude to have. I understand why it seems attractive uh, to the extent that government is run on a minute-by-minute Twitter cycle. Uh, you could see where constantly, constantly, constantly trying to grab that uh, edge uh, might have some advantage. But the truth is, none of us are perfect, and none of us know exactly what should be done. And we throw out these theories, and then we need to test them. And sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, and part of what we're trying to do with, with, with the recommendations in that particular chapter is have the data that just makes, you know, hopefully the majority of sensible people say, okay, that was a good effort. We, we, now we need to fix it a little bit. 
which again is what every long-term surviving institution in the world uh, does as they try to serve their mission better. I I, I agree a hundred percent. I I you know it's interesting. You know, Brian, you mentioned the broadband map as a sort of an example of this, and 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 I think one just so you know institutionalization. That's like that's how we uh, to Blair's point you know, avoid sort of these vicissitudes of political cycles and other priorities sort of hobbling our ability. I mean, obviously they will always be relevant, but uh, but, but it gives us data that hopefully uh, will allow us to have some degree of objectivity, though oftentimes, you know, as Blair points out, it, that even that can be manipulated. Um, but, but the other thing, you know, in going to the broadband mapping, but also there's really a, you know, a lot of different sort of data sources that are that have the same for, for which this same issue applies is that you know we're dealing with a, a dynamic problem and so we have to have data that can track that dynamism so that we can develop solutions that are adaptable and reflect that dynamism and 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 so you know we, we, i i say oftentimes you know that which is not measured is not done and so if if, if we are not measuring these things and we're not coming up with good solutions to how to fix these problems and, and the fact of the matter is that broadband deployment and adoption um you know the definite the very definition of broadband uh, these are things that not just can change but must change through time and we expect them to you know we we expect that it, when we fund a project that that project will change broadband that's available in a particular area uh, we hope that it will also uh, be reflected in increases in adoption in some areas depending on pricing and things like that so uh, we, we have to you know build in data collections that will help capture this information and and, and hopefully you know the data will remain useful and uh, you know across administrations across uh, political cycles um, you know across tweet storms I got one last question. Uh, it's a, a practical one. Well, it's a political one. I don't know how practical it is. Uh, but but obviously, most everyone listening, and certainly all of us here on the cast, understand that there's a lot of focus and attention and discussion. There have already been some down payments uh, financially and policy-wise from Congress. But we also anticipate that there's going to be uh, further action on broadband funding and possibly even a a larger infrastructure bill. So I guess the question is this, is there an urgency uh, to continue to highlight the recommendations in the report for inclusion in these efforts? And and if so, what would you like to see from, from industry and others? What, what can those listening do uh, to help advance these recommendations across the goal line with policymakers before we see these huge uh, actions on broadband and infrastructure uh, moving forward without these? We want them in there, I would suspect, correct? Absolutely. Um, I, I'd say yes. There is definitely an urgency, and there's a, there's a fierce urgency. Um, and, and one of the reasons why there's such urgency is that you know these recommendations are really just the start. As I mentioned, you know, we ex- fully expect some of them may be adopted. Some will be transformed into something new and better. Some are going to end up on the cutting room floor. The, the process by which it goes from the the plan uh, it, it, in its nascent form to something. Uh, more to, to, to actual legislation or actual programs or regulation or uh, public-private partnerships. You know, th- that, that process takes time and, and it, it takes time. And I think as we recognize now, um, you know, these are resources that are of critical importance to people's livelihoods and in fact, perhaps even their very lives. So since this is a, a conversation and since this is the beginning of the conversation, we, we have to move quickly. And it has to, by its very nature, be a conversation in which we have 
uh, participation and buy-in uh, at multiple levels from, uh, you know, not just within government, but also within industry, because that is how these networks are built. And that is uh, how uh, these subsidies are, are, are received. And, 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 you know, it needs to be uh, something that has support from civil rights organizations and not-for-profits and academia. So it's, it's a long conversation. There's a lot of work that has to go into it. And, and I think one other thing that's important to note is that you know, we, we also spend a lot of time and and uh, and a lot of money, the, the majority of our money uh, right now focused on the deployment issue, the, the availability issue, where, you know, there, there is an unmet need that affects millions more people potentially on the affordability prong. And, and so right now, uh, as, you know, we look towards, uh, you know, the potential for large, um, you know, funding sources and, and, and or, uh, legislation that calls for large amounts of money being uh, dedicated to broadband. The, the, the overwhelming majority of that conversation is governed by a question of deployment and availability, and so we need to also have in this conversation and, and urgently a uh, emphasis on the adoption issue and on the affordability issue um, because it may end up costing far, far less to help far more people. Uh, yeah, th- those are sort of, I think, what the you know main priorities need to be right now. Somewhat like Ecclesiastes, there's a time and a purpose to everything. At this moment, and probably for the next 120 days, the focus on these issues really needs to be at Congress and with the administration, uh, particularly um, with the COVID bill, and even more so with the infrastructure bill. But then there's a number of other things that happen in the administration as it looks at uh, all of its agencies and tries to determine whether it's really providing equal and inclusive access to its those services, which I think the foundation for which is universal broadband uh, adoption. I think a lot of states and local governments are going to have to look at things that they're doing. And I would note that governors understand this. In fact, in a survey of 20 um, recent state of the state speeches by governors, all 20 of them mentioned broadband. So it's going to happen in a lot of different ways and a lot of different times. But right now, it's particularly important that Congress and the administration work together to make sure that we get the funding we need to make sure that there are networks everywhere and everyone is connected. The title of the report we've been talking about in closing is Connecting and Uplifting America, a Lewis Latimer Plan for Digital Equity and Inclusion. And it can be found on the National Urban League's website. So go to um, www.nul.org, look for the Latimer Plan. I'd like to thank Blair and Smitty for being our guests today, and, and thank you for your continued passion and service to our nation on these and many other important topics. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, everyone, that's going to do it for our two-part series here on renewing the National Broadband Plan here on Nokia Today. We are thrilled that you joined us for these episodes of the podcast. Of course, if you're not already subscribed to the podcast, if you're a new listener, make sure and go back and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google. Wherever you get your podcasts, make sure to go subscribe today to stay up to date with the latest in thought leadership and expertise from the people at Nokia. They're doing amazing work and they have a lot of expertise and insights to share here on the podcast. So make sure to stay up to date with those by 
by subscribing to the podcast today. And thank you once again to our guests, to Brian Hendricks for moderating our conversation, to Blair Levin and Edward Smith for joining us here on the show. We appreciate their insights very, very much. And of course, we'll be back soon with new episodes of the podcast, so stay tuned for that. But until then, I've been your host today, Tyler Kern. Thanks for listening. Thank you.